Welcome to the podcast, No Code Talks with Creatio. I'm your host, Andy Zambito, Chief Sales Officer Americas at Creatio. It's with great pleasure I'd like to present our guest today, Cameron Harold, CEO at Whisperer and business growth guru. Cameron is a top business consultant. He's the mastermind behind hundreds of companies' exponential growth, and he's touched thousands of businesses indirectly through his work. And today, we'll be talking with Cameron about how to create a world-class company by empowering employees with freedom. So Cameron, thank you so much for taking the time with us here today. You're welcome. Um, as, uh, as Eric mentioned, you know, and it's near and dear to us, this, this concept of, of freedom, and so maybe we should start there. And I'd love to understand, based on, on your experience, when you think about um, you know, organizations and how they operate, what would you say usually is the, the restrictor? Right? What is restricting uh, organizational freedom and, and kind of limiting employee creativity? One of the ones I think is, is restricting the freedom is just trust, where the, the leaders don't trust that their employees are doing the work or doing the right work or you know being productive. And it's not trust in that they're they're worried they're screwing them, they're worried they're taking advantage of them. It's more they just don't they don't just trust that it's getting done. You know, I, I have a couple of friends that were in um, the Navy SEALs and they were in the SEAL Team Six, but they were in the Black Ops team of SEAL Team Six. So they were in like the the elite part of the most elite part of the Navy SEALs. And they would go into an operation and they would only do their job and they would never look outside of their like 40 or 60 degree window they were looking at, trusting that that the others on their team were doing the job. And I don't think that we've done a good job within organizations at building that trust where you just know that your people are doing it. You know, I, I spoke with someone recently and a CEO of a company, he's got about 700 employees and they're working to go completely remote now. And he said, well, how do I know if my employees are doing all, you know, doing work at home? I said, well, if you've got the right people, you're not going to worry about it. Like, do you sit and look over their shoulder when they're at your office? He goes, well, kind of. I'm like, well, then you have the wrong people. Like if if you're sitting looking, you know what I mean? So I think it goes to that. I think it's a foundation level of trust. And then the next one is just really having good, clear plans and visibility as to what people are working on. So you know they're working on the highest impact areas. You know you're getting the highest ROI of your people, time, and money. I think that's no, that's, a, that's a great example. You know, you want you want to hire adults and professionals where you don't. I think that's a good litmus test: is do I look over their shoulder when I have the opportunity? So, in addition then to to kind of building trust as a as a foundational area, are there other recommendations that you would give to the leaders when it comes to um, providing teams with uh, more freedom to innovate? to be creative and bring that to the workforce rather than kind of, I'm just going to do my 20 degrees that you mentioned now in a work environment, maybe a little bit different. You actually want to foster some innovation and, and, uh, and, and creative thinking beyond the trust. What else would you potentially recommend to the leaders? Yeah. So, and I, and I don't want to just kind of speak to any of my books or my content that I've written, but one of my core Go books is called vivid. It's called vivid vision. And there's this concept of, you know, in, in most companies in corporate America, we have a vision statement, right? It's a one sentence statement. We mashed up a bunch of words and that was supposed to align people, but it, it doesn't explain what the company is supposed to look like, act like, and feel like in the future. And if there's a good enough, you know, four or five page description of the whole company three years from now, like almost as if you walked around your company three years in the future and described it and then showed every employee what was happening with customer relationships, what employees were saying in the future, how the leadership teams were working, how you're using dashboards without knowing how it came true. 
if you could describe your company in its finished state three years from now, employees would all start making decisions aligned with that. Hmm. They would start coming up with ideas aligned with that vivid vision. So there, there has to be some direction that everyone is, is applying their creativity to. Otherwise, you, know, you could be applying your creativity, but you're going in a complete 180 degree direction from where the company wants to go. So yeah. you, you want to allow a level of autonomy and a level of creativity and a level of people to be able to make their own decisions on what to work on, as long as it's driving towards a vivid vision, driving towards the core goals. I spoke with the CEO in New Zealand yesterday, and they've got a couple hundred employees, and, and we were talking about their marketing and their churn. And he said, you know, we've got about 15% churn. And I'm like, that's terrible. Like if, if 15% monthly churn, I'm like, that, that's wow. a horrible number. But he said, well, the marketers say it's okay because of blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, if I told you that on Air New Zealand, 15% of the customers would never fly on that airline again, he goes, oh, fuck, that would kill the brand. I'm like, exactly. Right. So you need to decide what your core goals are. And I don't think that's a core goal for the company. So if you have these core goals, like, you know, not reducing churn, but having very high employee net promoter score, having a very high right. customer net promoter score, employees will start making decisions aligned with that. And then at least their creativity is aligned in that right direction, which then drives revenue and profit. I think that's actually an amazing insight. So please feel free to reference the books and the rest. That, that's why you're here. We want to hear from you. So thank you for that. Um, so when I think about, you know, people often refer to the, you know, the triangle of people process and technology, and I think it's, it's obviously super relevant nowadays. Um, is there one of these pillars of that triangle that you feel is, is most critical at this juncture in time? And if so, why? People, always. It, okay. It's always. I mean, the, and, and I, would, I would argue to the death on this, not to be right, but to be heard. Um, <laughs> okay. That So I've built companies that rely on process. You know, I, I was the second in command for 1-800-GOT-JUNK, who I'm sure everyone listening has heard of the company. I took them from 14 employees to 3,100 employees in six years. We did it with no debt. We gave up no equity. And we ranked as the number two company to work for in all of Canada. But we did it as much as I believed in process. I also believed in outcome over process. And I believe that if I had the right people aligned with the vision, aligned with the core values, and I obsessed about keeping those employees happy, they would figure out the processes, they would apply technology, they'd make all the right decisions. But if I was always focusing on systems or technology, people always felt like they came third. And unfortunately, the people make decisions based on their feelings. They're not a computer, right? So they, they, it's why I always believe that, that are my employee net promoter score is the most important metric in the company. The second most important metric is my customer net promoter score. And then it's profit and revenue in any of the drivers. Because if my employees are super happy, they'll drive customer success. So I think in that, in that people process and technology, for me, it's an obsession about, as Jim Collins said, getting the right people on the bus, but also getting the wrong people off the bus. You know, I don't think we work hard enough at getting the cultural cancers out of the organization at getting the political people out of the organization, at getting the toxic underperformers out of the organization. We all talk about recruiting and a great culture sure. in interviewing and hiring, but how about identifying those cultural cancers and getting them out quickly? I think that's, uh, yeah, you couldn't have said that any better. And, and so, but I want to touch on something else you mentioned along that, along that answer, uh, where 
the because they had that vision that you said because they were the right people and you focused on their satisfaction do you have some good examples maybe where you know you said you were focused on process did they bring processes or anything to you that you you hadn't necessarily thought of or or that uh, helped drive the business because of that structure oh sure we we've had we had um, employees that were so motivated to drive profitability that they came to us with new systems or new ideas that massively changed the company i'll give you an example this is 20 years ago. My executive assistant came to me one day and she said, um, I just got us a 35% discount with FedEx. I'm like, I didn't know FedEx even gave corporate discounts. She goes, yeah. I'm like, how long did it take you to negotiate that? She goes, one phone call. And then she looked at me and she goes, hang on a sec. And she leaves and comes back 15 minutes later. She goes, I called them a second time. I got us to 40. Like, <laughs> you know, that wasn't necessarily a process, but it was a mindset of someone whose job wasn't even to negotiate that, but she saw an opportunity to be proactive and drive something. Well, that number, we were spending around $300,000 a year with FedEx on Courier with all of our wow. franchisees. So that 40% discount saved us 120 grand. She was only making 40. She wow, paid for herself for the next three years. So Suzanne, Paul, if you're listening, like I still remember that kind of thing 20 years later. That's that's amazing. But well, that's, so let's, because, let's, that's really because she knew that we cared about her, right? Yeah. No, I, I think you, you, these are all building upon each other very well. So let's let's stay on this topic of of process improvement for a moment. And so, with your your podcast and and your your books, you know, you focus heavily on kind of operational uh, executives that are you know and, and this that typically own the areas of of process. Based on your conversation with your your members. What are the primary concerns right now related to process improvement and excellence that you're hearing out there in, in the marketplace? What do you mean? What are the concerns? Well, I, you know, are there any I meaning around process improvement inside of their company? So if you think about um, it, in most organizations that are trying now with, with the pandemic and the rest of things that have happened, they're dealing with a lot of reevaluation of their organization yeah. or they're being challenged by net new threats with you know, digital transformation. Uh, so I, I, the, I guess the, the genesis of this question is, since you're dealing with operating officers a lot that have yeah. this as a core part of their, their competence yeah. and control, are there areas that, that they're focused and concerned on? Sure. Yeah. Within the COO Alliance, so we have COOs from 17 countries that are part of the COO Alliance. One of the things that we're talking around process in a lot of our calls, we do monthly calls together, is trying to ensure that the processes that we're putting into our organizations are simple. And, and we were talking about this a couple months ago on one of the calls and someone said, it's almost like we need to be able to document any new system on a post-it note. Hmm. And then you can take the post-it note and bring it into a Google sheet, or then you can bring it into a process.io or a sweet process or somewhere else. But so often people try to create the perfect process without simplifying it. And I think that was a really unique thought around just the simplification of everything, because we can, I think, at times create process for process sake. Mm -hmm. where we need to create the simplicity first. So I also often look at the, the project or the tasks that we might be trying to create a process for. And before I want to create a process for it, I first ask, can we stop doing it? Like, does it even need to be done? Okay. Because to automate, to automate something that you just don't need to do is kind of pointless, right? It, it, so it, the, the mindset for me is stop, optimize, mm -hmm. automate, and outsource. So the automate would be kind of the process, but I really want to stop first and sure. see if I even need to ever do it. And then the, the optimization of the process to kind of simplify it. Um, 
we had a, a franchisee. God, I hope he's not listening. He's a wonderful human. His name is Bob. <clears throat> he was the first franchisee at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And Bob would, probably wouldn't be offered a franchise today. He just didn't have the criteria that we started to look for in a franchisee. He's done well, wonderful human. But he was in a bad market. He was in, in a very blue collar market. Uh, he was in you know Michigan. He got tons of snow, like ridiculous amounts of snow. Um, and so we would create systems or processes for what we would call them Bob proofing that Bob <laughs> needed to be able to use it in his market in February and still be able to execute the system. And I think so often we create systems that are too complicated because we either let complicated people create them or we don't think about simplicity. I, I like that approach. And then you mentioned along the way though, of that journey. So, you know, do we need it? Can we simplify it? Then you mentioned automation. Uh, where do you believe automation uh, of processes like this sh should uh, be owned inside of an organization? Well, I think the first part is that it has to be owned with um, the, the operations group has to decide what we're actually going to, you know, put in place because the operations group has visibility or should have visibility to your customers and to what the company really needs. I don't think that IT should be driving the process automation because often they don't either have that visibility and this isn't, this might be a personal bias, but IT sh often makes decisions because they like to build cool shit, right? Um, <laughs> but it's not necessarily the shit that the company needs or that the customer needs. And, and salespeople should definitely not be the ones to design it <laughs> because they're always coming up with the next new thing that needs to happen so I can sell what we're doing right. instead of just wanting to handle objections. I really think it has to be operations with some guide with finance to look at the ROI of the people, time, and money of creating and using these new systems and automations, right? Because you can be automating and integrating everything, but if it doesn't actually drive the ROI, what was the point in the first place? So you 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 raise an, uh, an interesting topic and and I suppose maybe controversial for some members of the audience, right? Of IT versus business and and where certain activities and decisions should be made. And I think the lines are are blurring a bit with uh, the uh, advent of of no code and low code. And and frankly, I think IT has other challenges that they need to deal with as well, as opposed to stacking more on their plate. When you're when you're kind of coaching your members and and talking through this, how how do you envision the operational, the CEOs, the COOs should be looking to partner with both IT and the lines of business, particularly now, not just automating process, but within broader uh, in driving transformation in the business, because that's a big topic for a lot of organizations now. And uh, so you've got the leadership at the top wanting to transform. You've got IT and business with different perspectives on this. How do you envision that? Okay. And I may be I may be a little bit out of my sandbox because my world tends to be the 50 to 500 person organizations. But mm -hmm. my my approach is always that the CEO's role is to ensure that everything we're working on in the organization is driving towards the vivid vision being accomplished, okay. driving towards in, in, an increased employee net promoter score, driving towards an increased customer net promoter score, and then really ensuring that every project that we're doing, we're getting the highest ROI off our three inputs. You know, the, the, the three inputs that every company has is our people, the days and weeks or time in front of us and money. And, and are the systems and processes and the change that we're doing getting that, that highest ROI? Um, but I'm not sure that I would be able to speak past that. <laughs> well, sure. I know, it's okay. That, that, that's, that's still on the money. And, and I don't know then to the degree you, you've uh, engaged with your, your network about 
um, technologies like no-code approach where you can enable the business to do some of these IT functions and therefore increase ROI and increase speed? Is that is that a topic that comes up in your network? It, it is, and it's actually something you guys are actually going to be a guest speaker at one of our upcoming events. We're going to have Wonderful. you, um, yeah, we're actually having NoCode do a presentation. Um, just, I, I think it's really important that they get exposed to this level of thinking. And a lot of our members are bigger organizations. We've got some that are in the billion dollar, multi-billion dollar size now. So I'm a little out of my sandbox when I get past that 500 employee, even though 1-800-GOT-JUNK had 3,000. By that point, I was starting to pull my hair out. I was looking looking more like you. I was going to say, I, I, I hear where you're coming from. Uh, well, I funny, I, when I left, I left 1-800-GOT-JUNK and I was like, it was just big. And they replaced <laughs> me with the former president of Starbucks US came in as my replacement. She came in and said, what a cute little company. Oh, I, I see the difference there. <laughs> well, well, you mentioned earlier at the top of the conversation about uh, people. And I, and I think that, that tends towards a conversation around culture. And, uh, you know, my understanding with you is that you're, you're taking not only are people the, the most important, but that, uh, you know, you've been known to say that culture kind of eats strategy for breakfast. Have you noticed any uh, big shifts in uh, business culture over the last two years while we've all been managing through the, the pandemic scenarios and, and the kind of unknown uh, futures of the, of the business markets? Yeah, and I think I'm, I'm probably... Um you know, repeating what Herb Kelleher, I think Herb Kelleher should be given the credit for that quote as Herb Kelleher, he was the CEO of Southwest Airlines. I've always believed that that if you build a little bit more than a business and a little bit less than a religion, kind of get into that zone of a cult without crossing the line, um, that's really when you're going to win. And, and culture right now, what's changing has become pretty obvious and accelerated because of COVID. Um, there is absolutely a drive to remote work. There's absolutely a drive to employees having the freedom to live anywhere and work from anywhere. There's absolutely a drive towards a meritocracy where you just get you know, rewarded for based on the results that you're doing. Um, there's definitely a flattening of organization in terms of titles, but there's a shift back to at least having an org chart. I believe that the org chart should be flipped upside down where the CEO is at the bottom supporting the VPs who are supporting the managers who support the employees who support the customers. Right. So it's still, but people need to at least see who they report to, but not in a top down dictatorial manner, but just really more, maybe less of who they report to and who supports them because the CEO's job is to support. So I think there's a flip in that side of the organization. Um, we're definitely seeing, I think, a push too far to the freedom to just do what I want when I want and come to work. Like we kind of have to get Gen Y to kind of get slapped back into line a little bit and come yeah. back in. There's a bit of a reality check that has to happen. And I think, we, unfortunately, we're still in an employee market right now where employees are just getting way more than they used to get. Um, I had a friend send me a text message this morning and she asked how much she should get for her new role. And she said, does 130,000 seem okay? And I was like, yeah, it does. What were you getting paid two years ago at your old company? And she said, 70. I'm like, well, how can you even be asking if 130, it's the same <laughs> job. Like, why, where do you think you get off earning more than that at this point? Right. Um, I think there has been, a, unfortunately, a, a real shift there. Um, and on the same vein, though, I think we have seen a huge amount of salary inflation just because we've got inflation. Yes. Well, I mean, I think with, with all of the, uh, you know, we, I've, I've seen from colleagues at other companies as well, right, with all of these jobs that were held off the market, these job openings during pandemic for not knowing what's happening, you now have everybody seeking employees and, and that's driving this up as well. 
Um, I like the the example you gave of kind of flipping the model. Uh, in addition to that, are there um, are there areas that you think are are or is there one thing that you think is often missed by COOs that you'd say is a roadblocker for them to building a world-class company? So you've named a few good examples along the way, the things they could, they could focus on, but is there something else that we haven't touched on that you think is often missed? Yeah, focus. I, I think that there's so often companies are busy being busy and employees are busy being busy. And you know, as, as the organization gets smaller, they get distracted by that big shiny object and they're just not focusing on the critical few things. They're not focusing on what's really gonna drive the organization. They're not focusing on the flywheel. And I think if companies could, you know, I love Google's whole 20% approach to 20% of your time can be working on other stuff, creative stuff, cool. But that means 80% of your time you're focusing on the critical shit, right? And yeah. I, th I think companies miss that whole opportunity. So I, I have a couple more questions I wanted to focus on. So we've talked a lot about people. We've talked a lot about culture and, and, and putting them in the right direction. Uh, what's your position on... Um, you know, how, uh, how growing employee skills and investing in, in innovation, um, not only to benefit the company, but as a way to maybe free up that, that leadership that needs to do more and more if they're, especially if they're underpinning this whole organization. Uh, yeah, I, I, no, this is critical. It's, it's this foundational. So I've always believed that the leader's core job is to grow people. And if you visualize your employees at any level, whether it's a VP or a C-level or a frontline employee or a junior, whatever, visualize all of your, your employees climbing up two ladders and they have their left foot and their left hand climbing up one ladder and their right foot and right hand are climbing up another ladder. So you're kind of going like this, the right ladders are right beside each other. And the, the left ladder is skills. Okay. So you have to grow their skills so they can get up that ladder. And the right ladder is confidence because the more confidence they have, the more vulnerable they'll feel, the more open to skill development, the more open to critique, and the more they grow their skills, the more their confidence, like a child, right? Yeah. When you're growing children, you grow their confidence, you grow their skills, you grow their confidence, you grow their skills. So investing, well, I actually launched a course called Invest in Your Leaders. If you click on that QR code, you'll see the information on it. The whole idea with, with the in, investing in your people is growing their skills, is if I can grow the skills of their executive functioning, like their ability to run meetings, their ability to do interviews, their ability to do coaching, their ability to do delegation and time management, project management, email management, all the things that all these people have to do every day, but most of them have never had any training in. If I grow their skills and grow their confidence, they'll be able to do more within the organization. They'll take on more responsibility. They won't need to be managed as much they're also gonna feel like, wow, you actually care about me because you're investing in my growth, you're investing time and money in my growth. They'll then start to go through brick walls for you. But if you're just telling them what to do and forcing them what to do, they're gonna become like that frustrated teenager who finally just says F you and they leave, mm. right? Yeah, no, that's good. So, so when you, uh, we've talked uh, a bit about how folks have kind of been adjusting through the, the pandemic. And, and I often think, I wonder if now is all the mindset going to be to looking kind of backwards at what we just came through and, and what we could or should have done there. Is the community looking at uh, what they foresee as the next big challenge that's coming as now as, the, as, as all these organizations emerge from this space and we hear everything focused like on supply chain issues and the rest. I think folks are now looking at how do they insulate themselves from those same challenges that we just went through? What's coming up that you're seeing as an emerging challenge that 
that uh, your organization, your, your, your network is, is looking at? There's two. The first one is, is definitely around people. There's a massive war for talent right now. Um, you know, in the Bay Area where you used to live, and I've done a lot of work, the, the bigger technology companies can just buy talent. You know, they're using this money to almost at an unfair advantage to be able to pay for people. You know, 30, 40 years ago, we had laws related, and I'm not a fan of government laws, but we had laws related to predatory pricing where companies couldn't come in and undercut everybody. Right. Well, what's happening now is almost like predatory hiring where these companies have got all this war chest on money and they're just here, here's another 200 grand, take 400 grand. Like they're just paying for talent yeah. and the average company can't afford to then hire those people. So you have to build really good culture companies. You know, you can't, you can't be an average company and expect to hire great people. You can't be an average company, and expect to hire average people, frankly. So you know, and, and an average company is getting like a 50% net promoter score because a, a net promoter score runs between negative 100 and positive 100%. If you're at 50, you tend to be considered world-class, but most companies think they're doing great there. To really be great, you got to be positive 80 or, or north. So I think companies have to understand just great cultures to attract people in like magnets. They have to really, really invest in their people so that they keep them. I had a CEO recently he just actually signed up 17 of his managers for the course, for the Invest in Your Leaders course. But he said, well, what if I invest in all these people and they quit? And I said, well, what if you don't invest in them and they stay? Like if you don't grow them and they, they keep running your business, isn't that risk greater than investing in them and having a couple of them quit? So he's, he's decided he's going to invest in growing all of their skills knowing that if, if, he, they, if he cares about them, they're not going to go anywhere else. So right. I think that's a core one. Second one is related to marketing. I think there's some huge shifts right now in the marketing landscape where it's now no longer good enough to be really good at SEO and paid search and social and, and yeah. all the, you know, the traffic. Now you have to be one of the best copywriting companies. You actually have to really, really write great copy. It's going back to what it was 50 years ago, where 50 years ago it was about positioning and great copy because you couldn't track everything. Right. So you had to be. Now, and then we got really good at the data and analytics side of marketing, but the pendulum swung back now where now you actually have to be really good and creative. And I think companies are, might be missing opportunities there. Oh, I'm, I'm sure they are. I, I want to go back though and spend a moment on the, the culture element because I think it's, you know, it's something we all talk about. I think in, and you know, every, every employee, uh, every candidate I interview says I'm looking for a great culture. And, uh, but, uh, and we obviously know we want to have great cultures. Uh, how do you build that? How do you how do you discuss that with your your CEOs, especially you know you say you're working on these kind of emerging sized organizations where yeah. you know the every few people you hire is enough to potentially augment your culture in the wrong direction. So how do they how do you advise folks on building that and then maintaining? So for me, the culture emerges when I picture every company like a jigsaw puzzle, and it it starts with the corners. Remember when we built puzzles as a kid? It starts with the yeah. corners. So the four corners for your company's culture to really emerge are your vivid vision, right? That four or five page written description of your company three years from now that completely aligns your customers, your suppliers, and your employees. Mm -hmm. Second, it's living that core purpose. You know, Simon Sinek, who, who popularized the whole core purpose idea with Start With Why, yep. he was on our board of advisors five years before he did that TED Talk. Oh, Five wow. years before anyone in the world had heard of Simon, he flew out to Vancouver to meet me and Brian because he read about us in Fortune magazine. 
And he's the one who really got us to understand deeply obsessing about your core purpose. And most companies miss that. And then on the core value side, it's not just having them on the wall, right? Enron had core values, but they didn't live their core values. <laughs> core values should be a maximum of four or five core values. They should never, ever be a single word. They should be a short phrase like deliver what you promise or respect the individual or pride in all you do, something that's easy to understand. The only time I've ever allowed a single word as a core value is one of my clients that, that um, just raised $250 million from Warburg Pincus. One of their core values was simplify. I'm like, oh, shit, that's perfect. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Adding but, words to that defeats the purpose. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know. Um, and then it's the BHAG, that Jim Collins term of that big, hairy, audacious goal that you're driving towards as an organization. So culture starts with the obsession of those four corners, right? So that all the employees are aligned with that kind of global force. And Gen Y wants that more than ever. But frankly, so does Gen X. And baby boomers give a shit about that. They just didn't have it in companies before. But it's the obsession of those four corners. Then it's your people systems. The first side of your business are all the people systems. So that's your recruiting, interviewing, hiring, onboarding, training, the leadership development, and the identification of the wrong people and offboarding the wrong cultural people, right? It's all those people systems in an organization. I actually even get into a lot of those in my Investing Your Leaders course too on the interviewing components. Then we get into the strategic thinking. Now, companies call it strategic planning. There's no such thing as strategic planning. You have strategic thinking and you have business planning or project planning, but you need time for strategy. And strategy, when you get your right employees engaged in strategy, they feel compelled to help make those decisions happen. And then they get deeper into putting the plans in place in all the meeting rhythms to actually make the strategy and the vision come true, right? The meeting rhythms, we need to stop complaining about having shitty meetings and we yeah. need to actually train our employees how to run good meetings. I wrote a book called Meetings Suck just for that purpose. <laughs> it's for every employee to read it because it's how to run good meetings, but also how to attend them, how to participate in meetings if you're just an attendee. But if you can actually train your employees how to run them, meetings become very powerful. And then the financial systems and the culture emerges from that, right? Culture is not the free lunches and the massages. Those are simply perks. Right. It's, I, I really appreciate the breakdown of that. I know it wasn't part of our original planning. I'm glad you had that, that handy to pull up. But um, that also makes me think, so you don't view it as, um, you know, you're dealing with your CEOs and your COOs and saying, okay, define the culture you want and then look to impose it. It's, it's the culture emerges essentially from the combination of these, these corners and working your way from there. Is that, am I understanding your view correctly? Yeah, the culture, the culture gets described in vivid detail in your vivid vision document, right? You're going to describe every aspect of how your company is living, breathing, and acting three years in the future. You describe how your employees are interacting with each other. You describe what your employees are writing on Glassdoor and Indeed. You describe what your customers are writing about you. You don't say how it's happened yet, but you describe the whole feeling of your company. And then your employees are either going to say, hell yeah, let me help you build it. Or this sounds like a horrible place to work. I'm going to quit and move. You know, the other thing, and I'll, I'll, I'll show you another example. And the reason I have these handy is we talk about these a lot in our um, CEO Alliance events. Tell me if you can see this, the, the Maslow's hierarchy. Yes. So I believe that companies need to map Maslow's hierarchy of needs against their company, the, the entire company, right? Are you providing enough to ensure that every employee's physiological needs are being met? 
are you paying them properly? Right. The, the end of your bonus sucks because for 50 weeks of the year, they feel like they're underpaid and then they're happy for that two week period. But we need to remember that at the leadership team level, we're never worried about money. Right. But the frontline employees are going home scraping together payments. We need to be able to get them to pay them properly. And no longer is 30 grand a year, 35 grand a year. For, who the hell can live on that? Like we have to get these levels up and find ways to do that. Secondly is do employees feel secure? Do they feel safe? Do they feel cared for? Do they feel like their boss cares for them? Do they feel like the open door policy is really true and that they can come in and say something without having to go to HR, right? And, and do they feel like they have that secure, safe environment? So it's mapping against that. And then it's making sure, do they have the intimate relationships and friends inside the organization? And it's even more powerful or more important now that we're dealing with employees remote and over Zoom is they often do feel disconnected from their peers. So it's making sure that they have those relationships in their real life and at work. It's us as leaders caring that my employee after hours has friends that he can or she can spend time with in their city so that they can actually feel good as a human being. It's giving a shit about that. Because the more that we care about all of these things, the more they'll care about the company. Then we get into the prestige and the accomplishments and goals and you know winning awards and feeling like they're on certain teams or parts of the organization. And then it's like driving towards their own growth, invest in your leaders course, right? Building a great company, living core values. But it's really making sure that every leader thinks about the organization and are we hitting each of these areas enough? Because again, the culture stems off of that. Well, I, I really appreciate you diving into all of that, and I, I'm sure our audience uh, does as well, and they may want to learn. We're, we're in the wrap-up phase, I'm being told, so um, maybe you can just take a moment. You know, you shared a bit about your vision, Vivid Vision and your, your books. We're certainly big fans of your, your podcast, Second in Command. Maybe you can just share a few parting words as, as well as where people can find more about you and maybe join your organization to learn more on an ongoing basis. Sure. Yeah, so um, all five of my books are available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. I've written Double Double. The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs, Meeting Suck, Vivid Vision, and Free PR. Uh, my Second in Command podcast, we've done about almost 200 episodes now where we interview only the COO of some of the best companies on the planet. So we've got MindBody and Peloton and Orange Theory, and we've had some really great COOs of really great brands. Um, and we, the reason we don't interview the CEO is we've already heard from the CEO. I want the rest of the story. <laughs> uh, and then the COO Alliance, any organization with more than 5 million in revenue should absolutely get their second in command to join. We've got members from 17 countries and it's, it's really their tribe to look at how to grow great organizations. Thank you, Cameron, for your time today. I, I truly believe our audience received a lot of benefit from this conversation. To get more information about our products and services, please visit our website, creatio.com. And for more insight, check our digital event page and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Talk soon.